Is mainstream school failing your kids? The pandemic, with all the changes to schooling and daily life, is a moment of opportunity to rethink the educational path that works best for you and for your kids. So the question is, how can we as parents find alternative solutions that aren't necessarily having to do it all ourselves or pay for programs that we can't afford? I'm Jerry Kirk. And I'm Graham Kirk. Join us as we talk with families thriving on their own path. We shared practical tips, wins, and challenges they've been through to help you on yours. We interview educational experts and parent entrepreneurs with education solutions for the modern age, so parents wanting a better alternative can make confident, informed choices. Welcome to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. You're ready for change. And so are we. Welcome back to the Modern Education Movement Podcast. So today, I want to ask all of you listening what I think is a really important question, and one of which we might not, you might not have thought too much about. And that question is, what is education ultimately for? You know, we put in so much effort as parents and as students on education. So what is our, what is our why? Is it to get kids into college? Is it for them to get a good job? These common narratives from the educational establishment, honestly, are, are weak at best, and yet those are the ones that we're given. My guest today, Frank Frensich, sees a real problem in that modern schooling lacks relevance. He sees the need for a narrative that's much more relevant to the future world that students are going to inhabit. Think about things like climate change and social ambiguity, ecological collapse, very important topics. So today, we're going to talk about the original human education, as Frank puts it, that was universal throughout most of human history. We'll explore the mismatch between our ancient human bodies, which were sculpted by evolution for success in the wild outdoor environments, that now live in a radically different world, a much more sedentary one, with a lot more comforts, which is also quite alien to these ancient human bodies and sometimes health hostile. Now, to address these and other challenges, um, Frank is going to go over what he calls his sapience curriculum. And this is a list of subjects that he believes students need to study for survival adaptation in the coming years. Now, Frank is a writer, educator, and movement teacher with a paleo orientation. And after studying human biology at Stanford, he traveled to Africa on several occasions to study human history in the ancestral environment. He's also taught martial arts for many years and is the author of several books about health and the human predicament. I can tell you this is going to be a fascinating conversation and I think quite unlike any other we've had on this podcast so far. Frank, welcome to the show. Glad to be here. Really appreciate it. Yeah, you've got some, you've got some really interesting um, thoughts on on really on, on the on the human condition and, and clearly have a real passion for for the roots of, of the human story. Um, curious, what 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 has your attention these days in the midst of everything going on? Right. Well, for me, the elephant in the room is always the planet, and that is that needs to be the thing that's at the forefront of our conversations and our attention, and. Unfortunately, it's often treated as just another issue. 
And that's, that's a real mistake. It needs to be the organizing principle for everything. Naomi Klein is an author that I follow quite a bit. And the way she puts it, she says, when your life support system is threatened, all other problems fit inside that problem. <laughs> and, and that includes education because we're, the biosphere is essentially a lifeboat for humanity. It's the thing that keeps us alive. And the lifeboat, in effect, has a hole in it. And we need to patch the hole. We need to keep the lifeboat afloat if we're going to do anything at all. So that that needs to be the that's the alpha issue of our day. And we start by talking about that, and then we circle back to talking about other things as well. So that's what captivates my attention these days. Yeah, it's, it's like you said um, when your when your house is on fire, um, you're not going to be uh, worrying about uh, what you're going to. You know, eat for breakfast that day. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> um, so, what would you say then is where's where's the um, the gap that you see then between what's happening today with education um, and and you know what you, you talk about now, which is you know we really need to be focusing on um, this crisis we have around uh, our planet. Right. Well, there's a big disconnect in the way we think about the future and the way we think about the rate of change. And this, there was an educational critic back in the 1970s named Neil Postman, and he wrote about this extensively, and the, he took a historical view also. And he said, for most of human history, change from one generation to the next was so slow that it was almost imperceptible. You, you could pretty much guarantee that your children would have the same kind of life that you had, and so on and so forth. So there was a, a great amount of predictability in that kind of environment. But now everything's different, and we're looking at what amounts to a hockey stick of radical acceleration and radical change. And things change almost day to day now. And it's almost impossible to say with any certainty what our future is going to be like. So that makes the educational challenge really difficult because for so long, for hundreds, even thousands of years, we've, we've designed education under the belief that tomorrow was going to be pretty much the same as right. today. Yeah. And we can, no, we can no longer make that assumption. So the, the short answer there is that we need to train children for adaptability and a well-rounded set of skills that they might be able to bring to this new unpredictable setting. And I, I'm afraid we're not really doing that. I think too, you, you touched on something earlier in our, in our, our chats um, for the podcast about also just the importance of, of relevance, right? Um, I'd love you to expand on that a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Well, I remember first um, having this experience in high school. I, I went to a pretty dysfunctional high school, and I remember a lot of my friends complaining about this. They're saying, why are we having to do all these assignments, do all this work? What does that have to do with the world that we are going to inhabit? And back then, the big challenge was the Vietnam War and the, the looming uh, Cold War and the early signs of ecological devastation. And for the life of us, we couldn't draw a line between the homework assignments we were getting and the world that we were just about to inhabit. So 
that question of relevance was good then, and it's a really good question now. And what I'm beginning to see is that students are pushing back. There's, especially in Europe, there's a group of students called Teach the Future. That, that's the name of their website. And they're demanding that we actually teach the crisis specifically as a learning opportunity instead of some abstract condition that, that students will inhabit later. It's, it's a great opportunity to learn the history of the crisis and what kids might do in it. So relevance is more important than ever. Yeah, it's interesting you bring that you bring that up. Uh, Maybe think too. I have um, an interview next week actually with um, a young person Addie and uh, another fellow. They're going to talk about uh, something called Youth Rights Day coming up later later this mm. year. On uh, I think this is the UN uh, the UN uh, Human Rights Day for the Child um, in November. So yeah, definitely there are more and more signs and see more uh, examples of. You know, young people taking ownership or wanting to take ownership and, and working to, to claim that. So oh yeah, I, I agree. Things need to um, move in that direction. So um, what do you say then for you is really ultimately the, the purpose of education? Like what, what is it that um, we need to be focusing on? That's a great question. And what I see is a vacuum there because our culture at large and education at large seems to lack a unifying narrative to hold it all together. And what we've had in modern culture for the last few hundred years is this man over nature narrative. And that narrative is all about conquest and domination of nature to, you know, to fuel industrial civilization. And a lot of people believed in that narrative for a pretty long time. But now the narrative is starting to fall apart and fewer people believe in that narrative. And in fact, a lot of people are coming to the conclusion that that narrative is really the problem. So education needs to take this on. And I think the the classical Greek idea of the well-rounded individual is more important than it ever has been. And that makes a good narrative. We want students we want them to have a 360 degree education if we can possibly do it. And the problem is that we we're missing that because we are so focused now on practical results, efficiency and productivity. We want a STEM curriculum. And that, that of course, stands for science, technology, engineering, and math. We want our students to succeed in the marketplace with the STEM curriculum and What's unfortunate is the humanities are being left on the roadside. They're being left behind. And that's, that's a tragedy because for us to develop a new narrative about education and about our culture at large, we need the humanities to come up with some functional narrative. If we don't have the humanities working for us, then we're in real trouble. It doesn't matter what kind of technology we come up with in the near future. If we don't have a story, then it won't we won't be able to unite together behind a common vision so the story has to come first i'd love for you to 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 take us back then to you know i guess some of your your experiences and some of your learnings having you know traveled to 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 africa and in your studies as well at at stanford a number of the things that really kind of led you to this conclusion today around the need for this this powerful narrative right well what I learned as an undergraduate studying in biology and human evolution 
was all about big history. And big history is, you might say, an emergent discipline now over the last couple decades. And it, it's about what it says, the big history of the cosmos, but also about the big history of humanity, the big history of Homo sapiens. And when you start to look at that and really read the details of our time on Earth and the fact that we have a 300,000-year history as Homo sapiens, and that the vast, overwhelming majority of that time was spent as hunters and gatherers in wild outdoor environments, it changes everything that you think about what is normal and what is abnormal. Mm. So we are essentially a hunting and gathering species. And for the vast majority of our time on Earth, education has been 100% experiential. So imagine yourself in a hunting and gathering tribe. No books, no classroom, none of that stuff. No cognitive education at all. These people were highly intelligent. These are our ancestors, highly intelligent, but illiterate. Isn't that interesting? So... The way, if you were a young person in one of those tribes, how do you learn to hunt? How do you learn your habitat? Well, you learn it through experience. You go out with your friends around the perimeter of camp. You have experiences. Then later on, when you grow up, you go out and actually participate in the hunt. It's always experiential all the time. And the way I put this is that experience is the language of the body. The body actually learns and changes itself according to how it's used. And this is, this is also a big theme in athletic training and in physical therapy. So experiential learning is the status quo for humanity. In fact, all other non-human animals. It's, it's the way we've always done it. And what we're doing now, the cognitive approach, that's historically abnormal. Hmm. Now, that, that's not to say that literacy is bad or numeracy is bad or, or any books are bad. I love books. I love being literate. That's a great thing. But you have to understand that experiential education is the touchstone. That's the place where it all begins. And the, the tragedy now is that we've kind of sidelined experiential education to a specialty. It's an alternative form of education, according to us. And it's... It's maybe something that you might drive a student to if they were having trouble in a conventional classroom. But really, no, it's, it's precisely the opposite. <laughs> Experiential education is where it starts. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a really good point. Um, you know, when you start to look at, at the bigger picture, right? Um, yeah, mm -hmm. it's only the last few decades is only really just a, a small, tiny, a tiny little blip there. Mm -hmm. I, I hadn't really thought about that. Yes. And the whole idea of sitting down in a classroom is it's can be very valuable to students and it's definitely worth doing. But you have to remember that it's historically abnormal. And so the challenge for teachers and parents then is to try and create an experience for students that's consistent with our hunting and gathering origins. And the way I put it is that we all have to be experiential designers, in other words, Forget what our assumptions about what school is or should be, and instead start from ground zero, start from the body, and then design an experience to stimulate the learning process in the student. Interesting. So, if you if you had um, 
if you had a clean slate and you could you could create kind of your your model um, school for the modern age, uh, mm -hmm. what what would, what would I walk into if I was one of those students? Well, I've given that a lot of thought, and I even for a long time wanted to start a school on my own. But for me, the the best model here comes from the martial arts, because in a martial arts setting, you have most of what you need to succeed. As a student, you have physical engagement with the process. People are doing movement. You have a tribal element to it. And then you can add in cognitive training to that as well. But it's highly focused. It's disciplined. There's an atmosphere of respect and, and of honor as well. And that, for me, I, I've been in lots of different classrooms and lecture halls and all sorts of educational environments. And the thing that worked best for me was the martial art dojo. And that's worth checking out. If, you know, for parents and educators who've never seen that, it's worthwhile going to a martial art dojo and seeing how it works. And just anecdotally, I've heard from a lot of parents who say, you know, my young kid was a problem. My young kid was had attention problems, couldn't focus. And then he went and enrolled in a karate class. And six months later, now he's on track. Hmm. And this, I've heard this story so many times that it's worth um, taking seriously. Yeah, that's yeah. I, my, my own son spent some time in uh, Taekwondo. Sorry, no jujitsu, mm -hmm. jujitsu class for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can I can think of the, seeing those elements right where you know they would um, gather around in a circle and they would talk about you know different different things and and be asked different questions. Um, there was a sort of a fun element to it, but also. Um, you know, a discipline, a structure, rules of engagement, so that there was a kind of that safe container into which they could um, experiment and try and, and mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, room for failure as well. Um, yes, and, yes. And also celebration, right? Rec recognition of um, achievement mm -hmm. um, as well. So, yeah, and I guess that's a great, that's a great example. So, um, I'm curious to understand a little bit more too about what you're talking about, how, um, you know, as, as you point out, like our, our bodies themselves are, are, are ancient in the sense that um, they've evolved for hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and now we're in a much different environment where we are hunters and gatherers so much um, and how that can be, as you call it, a, a health hostile environment. I'd love for you to expand on that. Right. Well, this has happened so fast. Civilization has happened so fast, especially the modern form of civilization that, that we experienced in the last hundred years or so. This has happened in the blink of an eye. And our bodies have not changed hardly at all during that time. So we are still hunter-gatherers. We still have this aboriginal programming, if you will, to live in an outdoor wild setting. And now we're trying to take that same body and get it to work indoors. And that's what's called a mismatch or evolutionary discordance hypothesis. And there's a lot of features of the modern world that are very much alien to who we are. And that's everything from sedentary living to chronic stress, to sleep deprivation, to chronic noise and social ambiguity. All of these things are alien to us. And some people manage to adapt and some people do pretty well in this modern alien environment, but a lot of people don't. And 
what I find interesting is that a lot of the, the common mental health problems that people experience, everything from depression and anger, anxiety, all of this cluster of difficulties of adaptation, that shouldn't be surprising to us mm. at all. Because if, if you take a veterinary approach to the human animal, this is exactly what you would expect. You take an animal that is evolved to live in a wild, outdoor, natural environment. You put that animal in uh, an incarcerating environment, you're going to see behavior problems. You're going to see mental health mm. problems as well. So none of this should be a surprise. And I don't put this down to, say, for example, neurotransmitter imbalances in the student's brain. I don't, I don't see it that way at all. I say, no, we're taking a normal animal, putting it in an abnormal environment, and then we're seeing a characteristic response to that. So again, as experiential designers, it's up to us to create more paleo appropriate environments for our students to learn. Yeah, and I think in, in light of where we are right now with um, the ongoing pandemic and so on, we've certainly seen that amplified, right? Um, where, you know, you talk about being, being caged. I've, certainly that's, I think, been the case for, for a lot of us, um, not able to, to be as social or interactive or um, to be as active outside things that were out of the limited things that we did have available to us, so many of those things were were taken away, and, and we're seeing a lot more a lot more um, uh, struggles mentally, emotion, emotionally right, than, right. than before. So, I guess that well, the, um, the the salient idea here is the chronic stress that's experienced by the modern human animal. And again, if you contrast that with with our paleo experience. As a hunter-gatherer, you would have had occasional stresses. So, for example, you go out and there's a wildfire or there's a, an attack by a predator or something. That would happen on occasion. It was episodic. And when that happens, you go back to camp and you rest for a day or three or five days or whatever it is. And then you get back to your, your low-stress baseline and then maybe you have another episodic stress event. That was That's what's normal for animals in natural environments. But now that's completely changed. And now we have a chronic stress condition that affects everybody. And you can see that in the bad behavior that we see, um, for example, in the, uh, the conflict over mask use and the conflict. Now we're seeing so much bad behavior on airplanes, for example. And it's it's coming out in so many ways. People can only handle so much chronic stress before they start acting mm -hmm. out. So that's that's the alpha issue of the day as well. I was just thinking. I imagine you know some of those, those earlier uh, humans. You know, if they had their their arm cut off, maybe that would uh, be a bit a longer stress uh, situation. But uh... <laughs> right, and that brings up another point because I think for. Original human animals, people were highly physical and really robust and really resilient. Mm -hmm. With no medical care, people surely suffered all kinds of trauma, uh, that kind of thing um, that you talked about. But people did get better and people were able to rebound. And what I see in the modern world is kind of a weakening of the human animal and this dependence on medical care that... Um, is also abnormal. 
So something has happened to our physicality and our resilience yeah. along the way. Yeah, it's actually it's an interesting point you bring up. It reminds me uh, of a personal situation I had. So it was a year ago, or maybe it was two years ago. Um, for the first time in my life, I mean, I'm 49 now, so this was, I was 47 or 48. Um, my dentist found like four cavities, which, which for me was like shocking. Um, but as I started looking, looking into it and, and, you know, trying to look at the underlying causes and the roots, cause I, you know, I didn't actually want to get my teeth filled like the typical situation would be with cavities. Um, I started learning about some of the, you know, their earlier ancestors and, and, um, and just these different environments, even today, where the diets of, of people who um, are very are like very paleo, like back in, in the early days, um, cavities were just unheard of, right? Um, they they mm -hmm. ate they ate in a way mm -hmm. that um, supported what their body needed, and so I actually switched to a much more paleo diet and and a lot more high fat content and um, and, and a number of other things, and uh, I was actually able to um, heal those four cavities. And, and uh, you know, when I went back, instead of getting them filled, they found there was nothing to fill. Uh, that was pretty satisfying. So good for you. Yeah. So, so I'd, lo I'd love for you to um, talk a little bit more then about, um, I guess you know what um, what we can do as far as building up that resilience again um, that our we had as in our as our earlier ancestors did. Right. Well, one debate or conversation that always comes up relating to education and, and practical methods is the debate between freedom and discipline in the classroom or at home. And we have lots of people lining up on both sides, some people advocating for more freedom for kids, they need more experiential time, they need to play more, and so on. We've all heard that. And then other people are, are more disciplinarians, and they say, well, we need to keep the kids on task, and there you have to do sets and reps of their, of their work, and that's what's really most important. And so these two camps are always arguing. But there was a philosopher in the mid-20th century, Alfred North Whitehead, and he wrote one of the best essays I've ever read on education, and it's called The Rhythmic Claims of Freedom and Discipline. And he noted this conversation, this debate about freedom and discipline, and he said, yeah, both of these sides have merit, and we don't have to choose. We don't have to choose one or the other. We can set up an oscillation. We can set up a rhythm between the two. And that's why he called his essay, The Rhythmic Claims of Freedom and Discipline. And so what he proposed was you have two phases of education. And it, and it doesn't matter whether it's classroom education or athletics or music or whatever it is. It's always two phases. You have the romance phase where you encourage the student to fall in love with the movement. And it's not about execution. It's about the experience and the, the passion for that, that subject or that movement. And then you have the precision phase where there are right answers and wrong answers and there are definite truths to be known and repetitions to be performed. And then you just set up an oscillation and it could be an oscillation during the day, during the school day, or an oscillation during the school week or the semester or the school year. But whatever it is, whatever the, the shape of that oscillation is, you need to be able to teach both. And 
we in general in schools we don't do well at this because teachers have one style of teaching they're either more freedom or more discipline or they kind of mix the two and muddy the waters but if you can do both in oscillation then you can be really effective start out with getting your students to Tell them how great this discipline is. Tell them about amazing people who have done this kind of thing before them and get their interest up and running and then go into the precision phase. And that's something and you can be an experiential designer and you can do this. Interesting. So I'd love to to um, to then kind of take that thinking and, and look at what you called um, the sapiens curriculum. Which is, you know, a set mm-hmm. of a set of topics that you feel are really important. I think, I'm I'm, I'm assuming they kind of bring us back to to our roots in a lot of ways to to build up that resilience and adaptation that was needed back then into the modern age, where, as you point out, things are changing so rapidly um, that these are going to be like essential for survivability. Right. Well, the first one for me is always history, because if you don't know your history, you don't really know who you are. If you don't know how you got here, you don't really have an understanding of your predicament. So big history is something that should be taught, I think, at all levels. And it should be a recurring theme at all levels, um, not just at a specific grade level. I think you know you could start in kindergarten, work all the way up through you know, graduate work, working on PhD. Big history, big human history. Then things like practical skills. I think these are really important to give people a sense of power. Do you know how to fix the water heater in your house? Do you know how to fix things? Do you know how to grow food? Do you know how to perform practical things that you may well have to do when society is lurching forward and struggling to find its way? So that is very helpful. That's it. Um, you know, that's, that's an interesting one there too, because I was ch- I had was chatting with some some people who were um, up from Toronto recently, and you know they were talking about how, um, like recently with restaurants one opening again, how you know they're 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 packed full full of people, and part of it is people just happy to get it again. But you know they were just talking about how the, you know friends and coworkers and whatnot don't really cook for themselves, don't know how to cook. You know, they, they, they stop by, they stop by Tim Hortons on their way to work to get breakfast and, and they order delivery from McDonald's, you know, for dinner when they've got this, this massive mm-hmm. kitchen in their house. That's, you know, looking shiny clean because, um, you know, it's, it's never, never in use. And it just made me think about that situation, right? Where, you know, what if we did have a, a food shortage or even just let alone, you know, better nutrition, um, in order to, right. to fill your body, right. it's, it's, I think a lot of these skills have been lost. Yeah. And in that sense, I look back to my time in Boy Scouts and Boy Scouts is what it is, but it was actually a very solid education in some of those practical skills. And it gave me personally a sense of resilience and empowerment because I feel like if I can't get the experts to help me out, well, then I could probably figure out a way to do it myself. So the practical skills are important, not just for their own sake, but for the the sense of empowerment that they give students. Um, I would also stress social skills, especially simple things like the ability to have a conversation with another human being. And that is something that 
really tends to get lost along the way and is going to become increasingly important. Um, this is something that I've noticed in casual conversations around town is that a lot of people are incapable of the back and forth give and take that happens in a normal conversation. And a lot of us are socially dysfunctional. That's got to change. Um, being able to put down your phone <laughs> is an important skill too. And that's um, obviously we need to be adept with technology. That's a practical skill, but we've become over-reliant on that. And so that's something. Um, physicality. This is a great subject because what I'm talking about here is not necessarily physical education in the conventional model, which is mostly sports. Mm -hmm. No, I'm talking about raw, primal, native physicality, teaching young people how to use their bodies in basic locomotion, bipedal locomotion. Do you know how to run and jump and hop and walk long distances? Can you climb a tree? Can you dig a hole? Can you lift a rock? Can you do the basic things with, uh, on your own or with other people? And that's where physical education would come in. Physical ed education also needs to be promoted in its value because right now, it's mostly at the bottom of the hierarchy. You know, we, we live in this Cartesian culture where the abstract mental activity is held to be of the highest good and physicality is at the bottom. And that, that's in most schools. So that, that needs to change unless, as well. Unless, you, unless, you point out, unless you're talking about sports, right? Competition, um, you know, in those areas. Yeah, sports is – that's a funny one because I, I think a lot of kids – um, benefit from sports. Sports could be great for a lot of people, but but sports are movement specialties. They are modern movement mm -hmm. specialties. And what the modern uh, teacher tends to do is leapfrog over our paleo roots and go directly into sports. And for me, it doesn't make sense to teach uh, an eight or 10 year old how to play sports because they, they still have a lot to learn about being a better hunter gatherer. So first things first. Yeah, I'd love you to expand on that a little bit more. You're talking, Larry, about just sort of these these basic movements, right? Like picking up a rock or climbing a tree and, and, and so on. I mean, if, the, if these are things that, you know, granted in today's world, one isn't likely to use much or, or you know, or even need to use much. Why, why do you feel those are important as far as, you know, developing adaptability? Right. Well, the first thing is you, you just don't know what the future holds and you might have to you might be called upon to do those kinds of things. But having an understanding of your body in motion is really important, not just for its own sake, but there are cognitive benefits that come from that, too. There's this whole new discipline now called embodied cognition. And it's the idea that intelligence is not concentrated in the brain. Intelligence is actually distributed across the whole body. And it's, a, it's almost like a democratic process across the body. So when you deprive the body of movement, that's not just sedentary living. That's also a, a mm. sensory deficit. Interesting. And it comp compromises our intelligence. The the muscles of the body actually produce hormones called myokines, and the myokines feed back into the brain to modify how the brain works. So if you don't move your body, the brain is going to function differently. And I would argue that it's just it's not going to function as well. 
So I would, I would agree with it's, that. It's all, yeah. all, yeah, it's all of one piece. And in, in a sense, it doesn't really make much difference what kind of movement you do. But the important thing is physicality, robust, vigorous physicality. Yeah. It sounds like so, and just very varied movement sounds like a healthy thing as well. Are you, are you, I'm curious, uh, are you familiar with, with CrossFit at all, um, which has a lot of varied functional movement in it? Yes. And CrossFit is, it's exciting and it really works for some people. I've heard reports that uh, a lot of people get injured in CrossFit and it's definitely not for everyone. Sure. But the big advantage I see in CrossFit is that a lot of CrossFit gyms turn into communities where there's a lot of support and it, it functions like a tribe. So I think that might be the most important thing. Um, the movements that they do are beneficial for some people, although I don't think it's as paleo as it's cracked up to be. Yeah, probably um, not. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'm just curious. It's, it's, uh, it's, CrossFit yeah, is yeah. something I've been into for a few years now and it's been... Um, yeah, I, I would agree. It's, there's there's an element of community which is really supportive, um, and uh, for me, I just I really have enjoyed um, a number of things about it. But what you know, one of the surprising things to me is I, I think it's actually helped me to understand my body a whole lot better because when you have so many different types of movements and you're trying to achieve something in a certain amount of time, like I really have to think through the different muscle groups and stuff that ordinarily I would not. Mm -hmm paying attention to and even understand what my body is capable of in, in any given moment. So that. Right. And, and that can, that can break you out of uh, psychophysical habits because you're always trying new things, new combinations of movements. And that's in itself is very beneficial. New things are, are food for the body. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I easily get, I can easily get bored. So I like variety. <laughs> What else, what else, do you, what else do you feel is really important as part of the, your sapiens curriculum for, you know, thriving in, in the modern age? Well, I think there needs also to be an activist curriculum. And this is something that I've noticed uh, in my own personal travel journey through education is that in high school, we learned civics and we learned that it was important to vote. And that was it. There was no education on how to really promote systemic change. And it was, I guess, assumed that the act of voting was enough. But now we're starting to realize a lot of people are frustrated. A lot of people want to change uh, various things about the system and they don't know how to do it. They don't have an education on how to access power or how to influence power, how to create culture. And a lot of people can go all the way through a graduate degree and not really understand anything about activism. So what happens is we waste a tremendous amount of energy protesting in different ways and, and just starting organizations of different kinds and trying to move the needle on the world. And we, we suffer, we struggle because we never learned how to do it. And there is education to be had there. Um, what, so what are some of the things you have to urge an activist? Yeah. Program. So I'm curious, what, what are some of the ways that you feel um, that could be addressed? 
Well, basic understanding of how politics works, for example. So the, the fundamentals of politics, access and influence. How do you access people in power and how do you persuade them? Those, those are like the two pillars of, of political activism. And there's a whole curriculum there. How do you find the people in power? How do you find the leverage points in a system, for example? And then how do you influence them? Um, and of course, there's different kinds of influence. You can influence directly through a legal system or legal means, but there's also cultural influence. And this is where we, we get involved in what is called artivism, um, the combination of the words activist and artist. And this is really an exciting domain because artists can use their art, their music, whatever, to influence popular culture, and that in turn has an influ a systemic influence. And there's an education to be had there as well. So I would like to see all of these things. And I imagine too, as, as part of this, as you pointed out earlier, with the, the creating that, that rhythm between execution and, and uh, I'm not sure exactly how you put it, but like freedom, freedom and discipline. discipline. Yeah, yeah, where, you know, yeah. part of it is just, tapping into that, that desire and the momentum of possibility and, and excitement and, and, mm -hmm. and interest in even getting involved because it's so easy, I think, for, for a lot of us to feel like, well, what, what can I do or, you know, what I do can't, can't make a difference. Even if I'm given the, you know, the learnings, learnings around some of the tactics and so on, it still won't really make a difference, you know? So I think this is really an important aspect of believing you can and, and, and even a tribal aspect where, you know, we can do this together. Um, you're not alone. Right, right. And you can also tie that into history. So you can say, here's the history of our region or our country, whatever it is, and here are activists who have made a difference, and here's what their experience was, and here's how they managed to affect some kind of change. That would be a very powerful education. Yeah, absolutely. Now we're, we're tying all the, all the topics yeah. together here now. Maybe, we, maybe you and I need to put something, something together for, uh, for the next generation. Um, Anything else we haven't we haven't touched on in terms of um, important you know your things for? Well, you yeah, say? yeah. I would also. I'm a big fan of this educator and writer named Alfie Kohn at K O H N, and he's written a book called Punished by Rewards, and this is fantastically important because what he does he's he's looked at grading systems and the other kinds of rewards that we offer, not just in schools, but in the workplace and society in general. And what he sees is a real attempt to modify behavior through rewards and that to the extent that we buy into that, we become less free and we become more automated. And we are creating a culture of what you might call do, do this and you'll get that. And this is what more and more students begin to think like. They think, okay, it's a game, it's a system where if I do this, I will get this reward. And that changes everything because it obliterates curiosity. It obliterates any kind of intrinsic desire to learn. And it, it changes the game now to getting the reward pellets as if we are just rodents in a cage. And that has devastating consequences all across society. So he is someone who advocates against grading systems or at least a minimal use of grading systems, use them very specifically for clear objectives and otherwise try and promote the intrinsic 
curiosity of the student. And that, that makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a fan of, of Elfie's as well. Um, read some, read some oh, of this good. stuff when my kids were, were younger as we were trying to figure out our, our way um, homeschooling with our, or homeschooling, unschooling with our, mm -hmm. with our kids. Um, yeah, really powerful. You know, it, it really comes down to, I think, curiosity um, for anything to happen, right? If you want to get to know someone, if you want to change an issue, it's um, you know, even, even I was talking with my son Graham in our previous interview he does some of these with me and you know he struggles a little bit with you know, he's 14 so it's still lots of lots of development going on there and he really struggles to find questions i think part of it is you know not trusting himself even to ask the questions and i just invite him just to just to pause and think you know okay this is we're going to interview this amazing person um on this on this topic what 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 are you really curious about them what, what do you want to know what what strikes you as fascinating about their story and and just to tap into that and you know, it's, it's rewarding when I start to see him kind of breaking out of his shell a little bit and venturing forth, um, you know, some questions of, of his own, even sometimes in the moment, because I, I really feel like that's, that's the birthplace of, of change, right, is, is curiosity. So I'm glad you shared that. Right. And once again, it ties into big history, because if you look at the history of Homo sapiens and all the creations that we've done over the thousands of years, Almost all of that has been motivated by curiosity. I mean, the, the great writers and philosophers of ancient Greece and the great cave painters of, of Europe, they weren't doing that because they were getting paid or getting a gold star or grade. They were doing it because they were authentically interested in the subject. And that is still within us. That's something we can still do. So, uh, you know, for, for parents listening out there then, you know, who would like to, you know, help better equip their, their kids for the future and perhaps try to fill in some of the gaps that, that we've talked about um, in, in their education today. Um, where can they find out kind of more about, um, you know, things we've talked about today, in particular the, the, the Sapiens curriculum that you, you've been sharing? Right. Well, people can go to my website, which is exuberantanimal.com, and just look up the Sapiens curriculum. It's, it's easy to find online, and it's, it's on Amazon, so that, that's easy to, to find. And... Yeah, I would just recommend finding a, a good martial arts studio and doing a few months at least of that kind of training to get that sense of physicality in a uh, in a team or tribal environment. And it's a, it's a good look at the old way of how education used to be conducted. So those are good good options. Excellent, awesome. Appreciate that. Um, yeah. And any, any final words you'd have for for parents? Um, any, any final words of, of advice? Well. Just to treat education as something sacred and honorable and really, really important. And I think we kind of know this, but it tends to get, we tend to get lost in the day-to-day -day shuffle of what we're trying to do and the, the worksheets and the homework and all that stuff. But it's a very honorable process and it has a long history and it's something that humans are really good at. So honor, honor our ancestry with that and um, don't try to do too much. Try and get the, the core fundamentals across and, and have a narrative and repeat the narrative. Whatever you decide the narrative is for your students and your process, repeat that over and over again. Make sure people know what it is and then you'll have some clarity. Awesome. All right. Thank you so much for, for being on the show today, Frank. I've, I've learned a lot and um, definitely going to check out um, your book as well. Um, 
to support myself and, and my kids and, and people in my community. So um, pleasure having you on the show today. Wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much. I, I really enjoyed it.